Greetings ladies and mental gents and welcome to this patch video for the web novel First Contact written by Ralts Bloodthorn which is available on both Royal Road and HFY. The links for them will be down below. And as always, I hope that you enjoy and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. First Contact Rewind Chapter 74 Top Secret Norfolkon Nozenicon, Sigma Blue Lima 50 Convert. Kateshikaan was a unified outer rim system halfway between the Great Gulf and the United Inner Systems, firmly unified outer rim. It was an agricultural system with moderate resources and extraction. Three planets firmly in the green zone, providing food for nearly 200 systems. The gas giant, refineries, and the asteroid extraction and smelting facilities provided raw materials to the great factory worlds of the inner systems. For 2,000 years, the Lima, who evolved in the middle planet of the green zone, had been pacified. The birthright had been controlled through genetic engineering. Their numbers diminished to a sustainable level so that after their system resources were collected, the species would survive according to the Unified Science Council. The Lanactalan had ensured that the species would be a net contributor to the galactic system rather than a net consumer and for 2,000 years had carefully nurtured the system so that they could harvest the fruit of the largess of the system. Then the precursors had come. The Lanactalan had fled the system or entered shelters to protect them until the precursors' machines left. Even worse, the humans had arrived right after. The Lanectalan had watched from their shelters and from their ships as the Terrans arrived, clashed with the precursors with a fleet that kept arriving during the battle, getting larger and larger as time went by, and refused to withdraw even after taking more than 10% casualties. Finally, the Terrans drove out the precursors and began landing on the planet, Massive dropships that disgorge robotic robots, Terrans in their heavy armor, tanks, artillery, air defense, and many other craft and personnel. Eustelet was a Hakanaean, one of the small people who had managed to evolve in the middle planet of the three in the green zone. He had been raised to care for the overseer's gardens outside their luxury apartments. When he was done tending the garden, he received his rations for the day and was allowed to return to his burrows that the overseers allowed them. He had watched the overseers enter the shelter, stood there in the garden and watched the doors close and the tube had retracted into the ground with a hum. For a long time, he didn't know what to do, so he went through the manor and cared for the plants. When the darkness came, he went back to his burrow, where he heard others repeating the same thing. Many were worried. No ration coupons had been given out, and the dispensers would not give any food without the coupons. Uselet and his warren mates had huddled together, worrying about the lack of food. The next day, the houses were still empty. Eustelet wandered around, caring for the plants, then went and stood in the front of the computer terminal that was supposed to give him the ration coupon. It was dark, silent, and even when he risked touching it a few times. He and the rest of his warren mates went to bed hungry. The next morning, Eustelet had been walking to his place of employment. The shuttles had shut down, just sitting there in the street, when he spotted something new. A group of Hanakanean females all walking down the street, holding infants, leading children, looking around with wide eyes. Uslet had run forward, stopping and looking at the females. 
She had stared at him, fascinated by the way he looked. She was a house servant by the name of Eleft. She and other female house servants had been crying and investigated. They found an infant and child Hanakanaeans in a building and had rescued them. Then they had started walking, looking for if anyone had food. In desperation, Ustalet had opened the overseer food box, handing out the food to the females. He waited for an overseer to rush up and chastise him, maybe even hurt him, for opening the box, but nothing happened. That night, many of the Hanakanaeans did not return to the warrens. Instead, they sat out in the green places, where there were trees, bushes, plants, and pools of water, and watched the bright flashes in the sky. They oohed and hard had the flashes and streaks and the patterns in the sky. The next morning they began to leave the cities, streaming out into the fields and farms and great sculpted parks. They ate what they could, drank from there they could, as they left the cities. Ustalet stayed in the city. He painted arrows to where the food plants were, to where the water was, and wandered the empty streets. In his travels he found a display screen, on it, he managed to puzzle out the meaning of the pictures. The pictures were asking if he needed help, if any of the Hanakanaeans needed help. He pressed the icon that he needed help. The icon asked if someone could come in and help him. Looking around the empty street, where a letter was blowing around despite his attempts to pick it up, he wondered why someone would ask that. He pressed yes and forgot about it. Two more days searching the city during the day and watching the flashes in the sky at night, and he met a creature. It was big, black, made of some kind of metal that was dark and almost hurt his eyes. It seemed as if it should gleam, but did not. It was a biped like him, only it stood straight up with the huge compared to him. It had glowing blue eyes. It knelt down and, using an overseer speech, asked if he needed help. Ustalet answered that he was looking for the lost females and immature Hanakanaeans. The big one promised to help and then began to follow him around the city. Ustalet saw other bipeds, some as big as the one that followed him and with thudding footsteps and the faint sound of humming, others smaller but harder to see, as their clothing was blurring into the background. Twice he encountered females holding children being loaded into vehicles. He worried until he was allowed to accompany the vehicle. The vehicle, driven by two smaller bipeds, took the females and the little ones to farms outside the city. There he saw the smaller bipeds, with the larger ones standing around, handing out food, blankets, waters, toys, and in some cases even helping out by giving females and little ones medical care. Ustlet went back to the city, helping to search. On the first night, the flashes began a crescendo and then slowly stopped right before dawn. That day, he still searched, eating when he could, drinking for the stale, tepid water he found it, but found nobody. He headed towards where the ships came in from the sky and looked around. He had always been curious about it, but had never been allowed near it. There was no overseers to chase him away. He sat on some boxes and stared at the wondrous things. He slept inside a mass transit vehicle, for overseer not the Hanakanaeans. They got up to wander the massive building. He found abandoned luggage, rotten food, and a litter scattered everywhere. A roar got his attention, and he ran to the window to see what it was, his natural curiosity getting the better of him. 
Ships started landing. Overseers began to return. Tubes of metal raised up from the ground and doors opening. The overseers came out. Tubes rose again and again. More and more overseers coming out. He ran out to the big black biped, whose eyes were still glowing blue, standing next to it and watching as the tubes came up. The overseers exited the tubes. They left you here to die, the big black biped rumbled in overspeech. They went away, Ustalit replied, half agreeing. Ustalit saw his own overseer and the family leave a tube. The female trotted over, reaching down and grabbing Ustalit's ear. Why are you not tending my garden, slave? Madam Overseer harumphed. You will be Dr. Ration Coupons and every wilted leaf. Release him, the big biped ordered, stepping between them. The Madam Overseer gave the blubbering exhale of shock, glopping backwards. She motioned to the nearby security and social police. Four of them came trotting over, three holding sting sticks, the fourth holding a thing that Ustlet had never seen. This, this, this creature interfered with my discipline of my slave. Madam Overseer harumphed, teach it a lesson. The system is under Terran Confederacy martial law, the biped said. The words vibrating Ustlet's fur. Kneel down and put your gripping hands behind your head, the socio-police overseer stated, galloping nervously around the big figure. I'll be prepared to be negatively stimulated. An assault upon one is an assault upon all, the big biped rumbled. There is no need for violence. The overseer jabbed the biped with the sting sticks. Ustalit closed his eyes, not wanting to see the big biped fall down and foam at the mouth. He wished he didn't have to hear the scream. This is a violation of Terran Confederacy martial law status, biped rumbled. Ustalit heard the sting sticks go off. You are assaulting a member of the Confederate Marine Corps, a duly recognized and bonded authority during the period of martial law. The biped said. Ustalit opened his eyes just as the social police overseer with the strange thing lifted a long object to his shoulder and pointed it at the big black biped. More overseer social police had shown up. Ustalit couldn't even see the law second corpsex surrounding the biped. They had moved away from Ustalit, who was now forgotten. Do not, the biped started. The long thing the overseer was holding gave a loud crack and a line connected the biped with the object for an eye-watering second. The biped still stood there, a light smear on his chest. First violation, transmitting to command and jag, it stated. Several of the social police and lawsec drew their weapons. Ustlet had seen the social police and corpsec use those weapons to kill unlucky Hakkaneans, who had been accused of violations of the social order policy. He winced and watched, as he forced himself to watch the executions. But more bipeds were showing up, only to be immediately surrounded by overseers with weapons drawn. This area is under Confederate law. Set down your weapons and raise your hands, one of the smaller bipeds stated. Ustalit saw that he had a sword in a sheath on his hip that is no longer than Ustalit was tall. One of the lawsecs sneered and spit a cut on the ground at the biped's feet. This is corporate property. We do not recognize your authority. Another lawsec with a much more ornate sash pointed at the smaller biped. Execute this fall as a lesson to his compatriots. Lawsec turned and fired, hitting the biped in the chest. 
The biped looked down at the impact point, which had not even marred his strange clothing that had kept changing colors. Second violation. All the bigger ones intoned. Ustlet saw the big black biped's gall go from blue to green. Ports opened on the backs and large tubes rose out of their backs, connecting to their bodies by chains of smaller tubes. You don't want to do this, the smaller biped said. You can still stand down. The lolsack overseer, with all the flashy stuff on his sash, clopped forward, pressed the pistol against the biped's exposed forehead, beneath the short black hair but above the mechanical eyes, and pulled the trigger. The biped's head didn't move, and when the lolsack overseer drew back the smoking pistol, all that showed was a purple mark on the faded red and vanished between one breath and the next. Third violation, all the big ones stated. Command and jag justification reached. Their eyes went to amber, the same small biped, all the mechanical eyes turning the color at the same time. Pistolet watched as swords were pulled out, not clean-edged metal ones with edges that roared and blurred and rattled. The biped had been shot in the head and pulled his out, the blade going from choppy looking into a blurry roar, and swung it at the overseer, hitting the center like a base of the upper torso. Blood sprayed as the sword howled, tissue goblets sprayed out across the street, bone and cartilage was ripped apart, and the sword tore free. The overseer didn't even scream, just fell in two pieces, its mouth working. All around was to let the biped set to work with swords. The two larger ones turned to face the vehicles, the tubes on their backs suddenly vomiting fire as a loud brrrt sounded, and though looked like a solid beam of light connected the biped to the lawsec vehicle. The lawsec vehicle suddenly exploded as it ripped lengthwise down the side. Ustlet dove to the ground, covering his head. Loud, thudding footsteps sounded, and the black armored foot was on either side of him. Ustlet looked up as he saw the big black biped rip the madam overseer down the torso with the sword, flesh and blood spraying from the rapidly moving teeth on the edge of the blade. Overseers were screaming, pushing to get away, trampling at each other. Some were shooting around themselves with pistols, forgetting the lawsack and corpsack training as they tried to keep the crowd from knocking them over. A shot hit one of the smaller bipeds. The big one standing over Ustlet turned with the tubes over his shoulder and roared again. Brrrt. The crowd just dissolved as the twin beams of light arced across it. The overseers, those nigh-on guards to Ustlet and his people, exploded into rags of bloody flesh. In a few moments, it was over. The street was cleared of overseers. Are you all right, Colonel? One of the smaller ones asked, and the one who had been shot in the head. Yes, drop the marines. I want this place locked down. Eject the Lanark lands. We'll sweep the system, make sure they're all gone, and turn this place over to the natives. Colonel said... He walked over to the huddled Ustlet. I'm not gonna hurt you. None of us are, the colonel said. He knelt down, holding out his hand. Ustlet took it carefully and was surprised that he was gently helped to his feet. We are Terran Confederacy, he said. How may we help you? Do not distribute, not for public release. Nothing follows. Then... Of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 75 Dreams. 
Dream sat in a contemplative position, staring at an image of a map of various planetary lines in her mind. She could see the four sections of the Unified Civilized Council, the Core World, the Inner Sphere, the Outer Room, and the Periphery, which was next to the Great Gulf, which the humans called the Long Dark. Tens of thousands of stars, of settled worlds, multiple species ranked civilized, near-civilized, and neo-sapient. Without a single exception, the Neosapiens were species that evolved on a planet after a precursor war and was almost two dozen of them. The Neosivilized were a mixture. Only fourteen races, six of them evolved after the war, the others were former food. The last, of course, was the Civilized races, six of them, all of them former food species. Dreams let each race appear in her mind, examining them. She thought, only briefly, only long enough for her implosion wire to tingle, how each one would taste. Afterwards, she rated them according to psychic sensitivity, using her race as one side and the Terrans as the other. Even though the Lanik Talans had supposedly recorded every moment in their history, a hundred million years was a long time, and she had to figure out what the exact keywords and search strings she wanted to use. The frustration led her to calling in 117. The smallest lime-green engineer came in, stopped at the door to adjust the track that the door slid open on, moved with a finicky precision. Behind 117 was the human holding a board with a nail in it. 117 flashed a stream of icons and dreams contemplated them for a moment. He was still discontented that a being had entered his quarters and disturbed his and Mosluk in an attempt to kill 117. Dream soothed 117, reaching out with psychic power as well as soothing words and icons and emojis. Once the small engineer had calmed down, Dreams had informed him that the information that she wanted gleaned from the historical databanks of civilization a hundred million years old. She also called in fights amongst the night, a russet-colored one. When fights arrived, Dreams told the other mandate that she needed from the database. Vites was horrified and intrigued by the idea and sat down, contemplating the idea. Vites had arrived with two escorts, one in white air mobile armor, a red crescent on one side on the chest and a red cross on the other, and the bright green interlocked green horns of a biohazard mark on the other. Vites was a doctor, a very good one. Vites told her escorts where she needed to go and the trio left so that Vites could gather the data. Dreams considered that perhaps a mistake had been made. A terrible mistake. She checked on Mr. Rings, who was sleeping in his bowler, and wiped away the EVR of her favorite thinking spot, putting up data. The six races of the civilized races. She moved around each of them, accepting the implosion wire tingle as she jumped on the back of each of the hard light constructions and cracked open their skulls, or delivered a death strike with one quick, sure movement of her blade arms. Each one was quick, easy, a leap, a stun with psychic attack, disable, and then feed on the dying creature's emotions. With one exception, she could do it, but it was clumsy and unsure. Sitting back down, she and 117 built up a set of constructs, the speaker and a warrior. 117 programmed them and had them run through simulations, move in, paralyze with psychic scream, attack, feast. It was all quick and simple. With the same exception, it wasn't that the exception was particularly tough. A warrior's blade arms would slice clean through the entire body. It was just 
clumsy. Fights returned unloaded data into the network, sitting with dreams as one once would have been set to work. The Nutripaste dispenser had largely sat unused, dreams preferring to take her meals from the stalls aboard the ship. Finally, the Nutripaste was ready. Dreams tasted each one. Three tasted delicious, one acceptable, and one not good, and one greasy and cloying. The datasets had been run according to 117's protocols, which were ready, and fights and dreams examined it. The three delicious races had evolved on sandy, dusty worlds, largely arid. The acceptable one had evolved on a rocky one, the meh one had evolved in a jungle world, and the nasty one had evolved in a temperate world, a single proto-continent and a vast roading fields. Fights and dreams looked at one another, cleaning their antenna with anxiety. The datasets were looking off. At Flight's suggestion, she ran a near-civilized races that had existed before the war and the datasets. They had all evolved on temperate, water-heavy worlds. Again, they tasted weird to both fights and dreams, and harvesting them was clumsy in the recreations. Even the speakers and warriors looked strange. Killing them was simple, but actually feeding off of them didn't look right to either of the two mantids. Watching, 117 ran programs in his mind, using CAD software to model it, 117 added another data point without turning dreams or fights, just having it appear in the simulation without even an icon of warning. They watched as 117 simulation ran, separating out species that tasted good from the ones that didn't, the ones that evolved on dusty, arid planets and rocky ones, keeping out the ones that feeding from had a level of elegance, then separating out the dominant species. The implications of 117 clear-cut logic disturbed fights and dreams, both, but more different reasons. To fights, it was obvious, from a medical and biological standpoint. For dreams, it was a horrible realization that explained so much of what was happening. They called in seas and speaks, showing both of the simulations and the data. Speaks watched carefully, nodding along. He could not deny what the evidence showed. There has to be a missing link. Speaks said, staring at the evidence. There's no way to put up a fight tough enough that we built the great war machines to fight them. We breed faster than they do, have dedicated warrior classes that can rip apart without effort, and they're susceptible to our psychic abilities. Maybe something you missed. There was a silence for a long time as five mantid looked at the projections, simulation data, and information. There's no way they could have fought us to a standstill, Speaks said. There was a grinding noise of amusement as all five mantids turned to see Rack and Pinion shaking their heads. The two human warborgs ran the weapons checks, their eyes going from blue to green to amber and red and back through. The five mantids put their heads together, talking quickly. 117's icon splashed almost too fast to read. They added the pure strain human to their computations. It could smash apart every single thing, but the warriors and speakers easily killed them, made it look graceful. The fights were longer, true, since humans fought on even after mortal wounds. Naked and unarmed humans were still killed easily by the warriors and speakers. Adding in a rock and a crudely made fur clothing, and it got harder. The black combine armor and the beam rifles, then the warriors were killed by the hundreds, by the thousands, just to kill a single human. Add an Imperium armor and weapons, and even the speakers could not prevail. 117 added in known weapons and ran it again. 
had rack and pinion suggestion, they gathered up an entire group of outlier cases and had them armed. It was a deadlock. In large group, the outlier was able to withstand the psychic assault. With a simple duroplast helmet and a simple lining, they were able to withstand the scream of one of the bases. Automatic weapons level the playing field. Security armor and combat armor designed by 117 just scanning all the databases, and the fight was hard. The five mandate looked at one another, then at the simulation. The race in question preferred worlds much like the mandate. Oxygen, orange, or low-energy yellow sun, stable geology with a single proto-continent, where the outlier preferred rolling plains and mantid preferred the dusty sand. This cannot be right, Dream said softly, staring at the outlier, armed and armored, next to a nude version. Yet, as 117 would say, data does not lie, Speaks replied. Perhaps a missing link, much like we are missing our speakers and warriors in the simulation, Dream tried again. 117 threw data up onto the screens. A neural lash preferred by Outlier to control the near-termly unruly, just cracking it would send shockwaves across the psychic wavelength. 117 put up weapons that he had found in the ancient databases, so old that it had taken nearly two hours for the data net to provide it with the files. Their weaponry would hurt across the psychic wavelength. Fights told everyone else, pointing at the discharged corona arc sine wave, breaching warrior and speaker psychic shielding. They're just, uh, just hurt animals, Dream said. Fights shook her head. Herbivores are dangerous. Ask humans. Humans are still badly injured by herbivores all the time. Herbivores are large, meaty, and thick hide or plates, often horned with sometimes even clawed. They can crush with their weight, bite with strong jaws used for ripping plants from soil, and many other ways of defending themselves. The russet mantid leaned back slightly. Do not confuse herbivore with weak. Moving about chewing the landscape gives them time to contemplate, discuss, and consider. If we look at our outlier, they are well adapted to self-defense. They had a predator at one time, probably a pack animal. Look at how their outlier's eyes are designed. 117 flashed a quick set of icons on the other four mantids nodded. 117 is right. Evolution only keeps what is useful and increases the chances of survival. Those eyes, that body configuration, requires a lot of nutrients to keep running and create. Herd mentality and an abundance of food was necessary for that to evolve without removing the extraneous body parts. Fight said, there was a reason every biological development in the outlier species. Even with 117's help, I have been unable to identify this system and planet of origin. Their records are no help. Their records are no help. They all rose up from roughly two dozen systems, Dream stated. Operation Dandelion Seed, Speak said, referring to the human disaster plan that had been activated when terror had been glassed. Dozens, maybe even as many as hundreds of colony ships had scattered from the human space. Ships of all kinds. Rumors had said that there were massive slow ships still moving through space, heading towards the targeted systems. Ships completely dead and silent except for the shielded computer core and a single zero-point reactor to keep the core alive. Watching silently through the eons as the ship moved through the darkness, waiting to awaken the crew and colonists. That made all five mantids nod. We have always assumed that we move through the enemy's space. What was to prevent him from moving through ours? Speaks asked. 
What is it to prevent our assumption from being faulty? That got another round of nods. So we have 14 races that survived the precursor war. Dreams mused, slowly sharpening her blade arms. 117 flashed an icon and Dreams nodded. I stand corrected. 15, counting our race. Our records are largely destroyed between time. Our fight from our original systems, our own interceding warfare, and the 1% line, Dreams stated. Yet the records are clear. Our enemy during the precursor war was destroyed, Speaks continued. No, they are not clear, Fight said, cleaning her antennae. It is an assumption based on exactly zero evidence beyond our own survival and the fact that no precursor machine came after us. And that is not evidence, Seas stated softly. I cannot see what you do, but I see where our inquiry is leading us. They all turned to the blind seer, waiting. War. War in a manner of, not of our race, but war in a manner of the wrathful humans. Burning stars, burning worlds, burning beings. All afire, but not mortally wounded. Terror smashes out in rage and hatred with a fierce violence, leaving horrified survivors to stare, shocked at the ashen wreckage of the empire that they had once ruled over. See, said, wringing her hands, the galaxy, the universe, will never be the same. And if I was to delete our simulations and our data as the second, dreams are softly. The seer held her for a long moment, as if she was statue carved in ivory. She sat on her boat, made of fragile leaf, a dragonfly's wing as a paddle. Her vestigial wings hummed as she paddled, following the swirl, sliding with the current and paddling into the pool where the current slowed and eddied. She looked around, shading her eyes with the paddle. Silence. All around her was an eerie silence. The banks were covered by wreckage, ruin, ash-covered ruins, bodies still and dead beneath the thick ashfall. There were no suns on the sky, no stars to decorate the inky void. The crushed and wrecked precursor war machine was covered by a thick black ash. There was no wind to stir the dust at the ruin. Nothing. Nothing lived. Nothing moved. Even the stars were gone. Then the rubble began to shift and move. The shoreline bulged in a jet black warborg, its eyes bright red, lifted from the rubble, raising its fists to empty sky and roaring in rage. Blood and screaming bodies poured from its bellowing jaws. Its fists were covered with the remains of shattered worlds, history denied and destroyed pouring from its ruptured worlds. At its feet were dead, small, twisted, bloody, children, Broken eggs, pardonings, little littlets, mature beings of all types, twisted and dead. Their presence had driven the Terran mad. It smashed about, picking up the precursor war machine and ripping it in half, throwing one away and putting the other half in its bloody jaw, where it crushed it between its jagged war-steel teeth. The warborg picked up the red star, grabbed it with both hands, and tore it in half. Blood and screaming being falling from the sundered star. Seas paddled away, fighting against the current, until she reached the calm water of the now, where she slumped, putting her paddle across her forward legs. The others watched Seas jerk and twist, twice racked by convulsions. Then she went still, shuddering, her vestigial wings rubbing together softly. 
Finally, the blind seer lifted her head, her antenna rising. Deleting the data will do no good. The humans will discover circumstances, events, and procedures they cannot abide by and will react with such a violence that the stars will hide their light. The data, as terrible as it may be, is the only way to hold back human rage and hatred. We cannot hide the data. The fate of trillions are held within it, C stated. They all leaned back, considering the information... Mr. Rings woke up, climbing around the new ceramic tree that Dreams had purchased him, enjoying the new feel of the larger nest. Speaks watched him move, mesmerized by the fluid way he moved. How bad is it? Dreams asked softly. Are we looking at what the Combine did, what the Imperium did? Seas shook her head. This will be a measurement all of its own that other events will be weighed against long after Terrans have been forgotten and turned the galactic wheel. Speaks shook her head. So we've outsmarted ourselves. The data means we have to definite conflict of interest in acting as political envoys. We all know that how the Terrans are when that comes to diplomacy. Pardon me, I appear to have, through no fault of my own, spontaneously ignited. Do you happen to have the time? Oh, and it appears that your food dispenser has ceased working due to issues completely unrelated to any action on my part. Dream said, finished by running a blade arm through her mandibles. That got amused responses, including 117 showing a short cartoon of a human warbore completely wreathed in a flame, with a bunch of little green mantid engineers chasing it with fire extinguishers. Well, we better send this for Terrasol to look over, Dream said sadly. The others nodded. Mr. Ring stared at the Lanactalan dressed in black armor, holding a neural whip in one hand and a neural stunner in the other, and wondered, if his beak was strong enough to crack open its helmet. Manted, free world. No, no way, no way that's true. Nothing follows. Trianonad high worlds. But then you got your antenna torn off by a bunch of herd-dwelling herbivores. Nothing follows. Rigel compact. You're acting like you never got your legs torn off by the humans. Nothing follows. Cygnus Surian Gestalt. Who cares? It's a hundred million years ago. Most of us weren't even recognizable. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. It's not what they are. It's that they're still around. Nothing follows. Digital artificial sentient systems. Just picture Project Dandelion Seed and apply it to a bunch of cows. Same idea. Picture the herd all scattering, thundering away. Where was the best direction to go? Into your territory since your great war machines were chasing you. Nothing follows. Terran Confederacy. Welp. Yes, we're gonna end up finishing this war. We'll start with staging in systems within a few hundred light years of the deep darkness and go from there. This war is gonna be long. They're in factory worlds we're gonna have to find and destroy. Well, uh, lots of killing to do. Terran Confederacy whistles as it walks off, twirling a pistol. Terran Confederacy has locked off. Nothing follows. Trainard high worlds. I wonder if it's too late to pretend to be a pacifist. Nothing follows. Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the science fiction audiobook version of The Memories of Creature 88, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be linked down below. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. And if you do, please consider supporting the channel.